Lights, camera, action. Hello and welcome to another edition of Movie Madness in association with Spitballing Pod. I'm Luke Byron, joined as always by Keen and Bonner. We've had a week away from the madness and we are back into it with 2012 Seven Psychopaths versus 2016's Free Fire. Keenan, it's a late one today. I've delayed this Arsenal Europa League business. How are we doing? I'm really impressed. Huh, this new system. <laughs> I'm loving it. I've been uh, making the most of it. So, um, Intro music as we come in. I like, I like all this. I mean, what, what these boys aren't ready for is... Um, I've clipped some Andy Gray commentary up, so when I make a good point next Monday, I've got his uh, commentary for Perez, where he claps and goes, that's genius. <laughs> that is genius. <laughs> but I'm just waiting for the right moment. Christ, oh, mate, I'm, I'm well impressed. Oh, I'll tell you what, oh, that's, that's, that's brought my new levels of <laughs> Well, I mentioned it on Monday's podcast. I'll mention it again now. Next week, it is... Movie Madness 150, we're going to be getting into American Pie, essentially the good ones. Uh, it'll be myself, Keenan, we may have a couple of other people with us, that's yet to be confirmed, but we will be there and we'll be going through, I guess the Chronicles of Stifler is a nice way to uh, put this. We'll be able to draw back to our interview we did with the director of the second film, talk about the order in which we replace them, which characters are expendable, the journeys they've gone on, and essentially... Uh, everything and anything that's included um but that's for next week i do have some news of the week for us to get into so let's get started there Only four headlines <laughs> this week <laughs> The only thing is you're going to have to start telling me you're going to have to give me like this is when I'm going to start banging sounds in because I don't want you talking whilst you're, it's all whilst good. you're trying to play it's... a tune. <laughs> um, news of the week. Great. The first headline this week, Kim Kardashian wants to join the MCU. Thoughts? Nope. Fuck her off. I did, did, see, you... a tweet. I did see a tweet saying, <laughs> make sure she's mystique. <laughs> <laughs> Made me chuckle. Did you see that Meg the Stallion, I think the second podcast in a row she's getting a mention. I don't know if you know what she looks like yet. She was included in She-Hulk. No, I don't know what she looks like. Um, I've still not watched She-Hulk. From what I've seen, I don't intend to. But it seems that she had like a decent-sized role in just an episode. So I don't know if this is like 90s WWE where we're like calling for Mike Tyson. <laughs> just bringing in celebs. Nice. Yeah, and making the most of it. Um, I don't know how much of the controversy you've seen surrounding Don't Worry Darling, the film with Florence Pugh and Harry Styles directed by Olivia Wilde. Have you seen much of this? I've seen little bits. Yeah. Lot, I don't know. Enough. The, the question I have here is, do things, things like that, first of all, from your perspective and just from a wider perspective, would that affect your chances of going to see a film? Um... It would like if there was a load of drama much, around it, would it put you off watching? It would depend on how much I wanted to watch the film in the first place. Well, because I I have no I have no 
because the inverse is for some people they'll probably be more inclined to go and see it because of the controversy and this this and this to see the end product the shit show yeah yeah whereas it don't it doesn't do that for me either if it was a film i really wanted to see right and i was desperate to see it i i'd still go and watch it it depends like it depends on i suppose it depends on how controversial controversial isn't it yeah, um, the, so I mean, the what's so what's the full? You don't have to give me the full. No, right well, there's now, a couple of things. Um, the headlines. So, Olivia Wilde broke up with longtime partner Jason Sudeikis, who I think is like the people's champ at the moment. After Ted Lasso came out, then she, I, th- I think you missed news of the week last week or mm. the week last week we did. She put a big statement out about Shia LaBeouf's behaviour and how. It was so important to create a safe space for Florence Pugh. And then from what I gather, Florence Pugh wasn't happy with the statement she put out and does also think that part of the reasoning for this is that Charlotte Buff was replaced with Harry Styles, who it's now come out is the new partner of Olivia Wilde. And there may have been a crossover with uh, Jason Sudeikis. So it's just a whole big thing. I know Florence Pugh has not done a lot of the media for the film. They inadvertently came out and said that Chris Pine's character was based on Jordan Peterson. Yeah, I've seen, I did see that. Yeah, and so it's just like, I think everything they tried to do to create some hype has just backfired. And I still think the film looks good, but I've heard pretty horrific things outside of uh, Florence Pugh's acting ability. The one thing I'll say for controversy, and uh, maybe maybe temporal, I say this, but you talk Shia LaBeouf. This isn't the first time we've been we've been down this road. No, exactly. I I'm not saying I'm not I'm not excusing your behaviour, but if you hear these things, do you? I suppose innocent until proven guilty. So I suppose there's that side of it. But if you hear these things, do you think? Mm, well, he's maybe you edge your bets. He's just gone on a podcast with John Berntal. Uh, I'd like to say friend of the pod. I'm not sure he knows we exist, but we'll claim him anyway. Great guy. Yeah, and it's essentially John Berntal getting him to admit to what he's done, and then saying, "Look, you can grow from this. You got to admit where you've gone wrong." And as much as accountability is important, do you not just think some things don't need to be on a podcast? I mean, let's not start litigating what should and shouldn't be on a podcast. We might find ourselves having <laughs> something to do on a Thursday. Well, um, like, do you I need to hear Shia LaBeouf saying, look, I have hurt women in the past, and it's like, look, we want some ownership, but we also don't then need you being sympathetic for two hours? It just, it it doesn't sit very well with me. I understand your point. It's, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't. My my issue is, and it's not to be protective of anything, but it's just I don't know enough about this scenario, this situation to say anything. But I do understand what you're saying. Is if he comes across as the good guy, because I assume I don't know. I, I I assume there's no way that it's it's off the top of the pod. He's just like yeah. Well, that's the thing. I, I and maybe so I'm coming at it from coming at it from the right angle. I had no interest really in sitting and listening to the whole episode of that. I did see the clip. Um, I do think it's the right thing to do to take accountability. Just look, I've seen that now. I, I don't need to sit in here. You say, 
I don't need to hear you justify it because he's going to say, I'm not justifying it, but I'm almost certain there will be, look, I need to get better. I've been in a dark place and look, that's all well and good, but someone else shouldn't have to suffer because you've been in a bad place. Yeah, it's a fair point. But I think that's uh, about as thoughtful as we've been in probably the last hundred episodes. So we'll uh, we'll move on. Now, something you may be more interested in. Rumours are swirling that the four hours director's cut of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood could be set for a Netflix release with a Tim Roth character among the items that were left on the cutting room floor. I wondered your thoughts on that. I've asked you before about the growing trend of uh, just wanting to see almost everything the director filmed. And I guess first of all, have you actually got around to watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood yet? No. Okay, so a four-hour director's cut, is that doing anything for you? No. But if only because f- I don't know if I like the film or not. Well, I was going to say, if the, fi- the film was, what, like two and a half, three hours long anyway? I don't. I don't. Um, I know it was a long fair, film. But, yeah. yeah. The fact that it is that long, and so it may not have the replay value... If you knew there was a director's cut out there, would you jump straight in with that or would you still feel you needed to watch the studio cut first? I mean, it probably makes the most sense to watch the director's cut, but for just sheer... Just for sheer the fact that do I necessarily want to sit back? Exactly, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Uh, You probably go to the studio cut. Do you like it? It was one of them and it's not even in a negative way. You come out of it and it... You feel I feel like a proper film critic saying like I need a bit of time to process that, and I felt like that when I watched uh, Jordan Peele's latest one, Nope, mm. and I knew I liked it, but I couldn't tell you exactly why or like the reasoning behind it. And so, if someone asked me now, just a straight yes or no, did you enjoy Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? My answer would be yes. Okay, but I've not been to rewatch it, and unless there was a lot more outstanding things that I was told were going to be in the director's cut. I probably wouldn't go out of my way to watch that either. Do you like Tim Roth though? I've always yeah, I know because Tarantino did do a director's cut for Hateful Eight, didn't he? And mm. there's quite a lot added to that. Tim Roth said he just got a call saying, look, I appreciate what you did, but yeah, you're not going to make the movie. And he said, look, you're the man. I was only there for two days. I can't be too mad. And, uh, I mean, he, Tim Roth, to be honest, seems like some seems like some boy. Yeah. He really does. Like, just just like what he's about. And then the last thing, Tom Hanks was asked about a, a potential sequel to Forrest Gump. He said pretty soon after the first was released, there were sequel talks and they barely made it 40 minutes before realising, what are we doing here? We're not doing a sequel. But there is a sequel. Sorry, there is a second book about Forrest Gump. Okay, so it's not an actual film sequel then? No, there is a second book. Okay, um, sorry, but not, not, film. not a film sequel. No, but if you want to talk in see, sequ- sequ- as something being sequential, then I do believe there's a second book. It's also nice. a monkey in Forrest Gump, the book, that didn't make the film. <laughs> Don't tee them up because look, if Tom Hanks starts getting a bit short for cash, maybe <laughs> they'll use the old uh, de-aging software. Like, let me Google it because I might have just made that up to be honest. But while you are looking, have, have you seen Tom Hanks' son? He he went viral a couple of years back. 
for doing Jamaican accents? No. You would not match him up as Tom Hanks' son. <laughs> There's nothing really to add to that. He uh, he went viral a couple of years back for just appearing on a red carpet and talking in a Jamaican accent. And then, again, Meg the Stallion. Um, her whole thing that she had trending was Hot Girl Summer a few years back. And he thought it would be a good idea to start selling White Boy Summer t-shirts. <laughs> and you can imagine how they went down. Hmm. Um. Yeah. Sorry. There is a. So they. I'm pretty sure. Um. It's a weird one, but yeah, there is a second book. Okay. Um, well, I guess yeah. they've left the door open then. Yeah, but the the. Second book, because I know I do remember this now. I just have to think about what we've called before Gump and Co. Um, because <clears throat> the weird thing about this second book is it was written after the film came out and it like references the film. I am um, odd, odd. I've got Heat 2 arriving tomorrow. The book, mm, you ordered it before me, nice. And uh, I wasn't sure what to get my dad for his birthday. I have ruined this already because I thought I was going to be at the football this weekend. And uh, I got him the 4K remaster of Heat and then the book as a follow uh, and the book as a follow on. So nice. We'll see if he gives that a go. Nice. Well, I'll tell your old boy if he don't want it, drop it right yeah. yours. <laughs> I, I got it on his Kindle. Ah, shame. I listen. I tried listening to the Audible one to see what the book would be like. Mm. It's like the most, you know, the almost cliched American accent for film trailers. Once upon a time. That yeah, sort of thing. it yeah, sounds yeah. like that bloke doing a whole book and I thought, yeah, no, thank you. Okay, I get that. But anyway, let's get on to our first film of the day. On October 12th, there are seven psychopaths. Wow. Make that six. Now five, four, three... You go back to five. No, I don't want to. Who will be? Friends don't make the friends die. Psychopathic friends do. The last psycho standing. I've had five friends killed. That's three more friends killed than you've had friends killed. And you think you've got problems. Seven psychopaths. What are you going to do then? I guess I'm going to die. Rated R in theaters October 12th. So there we go. Seven psychopaths. That was my first time watching it this week. And the synopsis, a struggling screenwriter inadvertently becomes entangled in Los Angeles' criminal underworld after his oddball friends kidnap a gangster's beloved Shih Tzu. <laughs> had you seen... You you had seen this before. Oh, I've seen this about four times, right? So my first thing I was going to say about this is, as soon as I finished watching, I thought, I'm not going to be able to do this justice after just one watch. Like yeah. I immediately knew this this needs more than one watch and so if this does progress to the next round i do think it'll perhaps more justice be done then um i didn't know what to expect and so you said this to me and i feel like had you have done any research you would have known exactly what to expect well i don't like to because then it creates usually unrealistic expectations no not even for that you've seen in bruges no no, this is this is a big thing about this podcast is I can't make that comparison because I've been waiting to do it on this podcast. Oh, 
I thought you'd seen it in Bruges. No, I haven't. I had it, two copies of it on DVD, weirdly, but I've not seen it. Oh, my apologies. I was another, oh, when I said to you the other day, I said, this is exactly what you expect with Colin Farrell and Martin McDonough. Um, well, if you haven't seen it, then yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I completely understand why you, don't, why you didn't know what to yeah. expect. Sorry. Um, my main thing that I liked about it, and we'll, we'll get into it more, is it it just felt original to me. It didn't feel like even in uh, the kind of mocking aspects of it, I mm. it still didn't feel like it was a parody. It didn't feel like that at all. I immediately text TK and said, you're going to like this if you've not seen it. And yeah, I still can't really wrap my head. I will explain it, but maybe the critics can do that for us. They say, the film is incredibly quotable and full of memorable moments, making for a script that never stops delivering. McDonough might have had a minor classic in the tradition of Quentin Tarantino, but by the time the characters head to the desert to pitch a tent and contemplate new screenplay concepts, we've nearly forgotten what the movie's supposed to be about. The film's unique script strangely succeeds in mashing together both intense violence and grand comedy. Though it seems derivative at times, it's offbeat, it's violent, it's well-written, and it's well-acted. And finally, Christopher Walken has starred in over 100 movies, and whether he's playing a deer hunter or a dog napper, has there ever been a better scene stealer? And as you asked previously, I did text you today, so I'll be asking you a question. Do you have a favourite Christopher Walken scene? Oh, a couple. Hit me. Russian roulette scene in Deer Hunter. Very famous. His monologue in King of New York. Okay, yeah, that's a good shout. His speech in True Romance. I think that's the one for me. I knew it would be. Um, his, the very, the diner scene, when he explains his side of the story in this. Uh, when he talks about cutting his throat, I always think that's very, very good, mm. very intense, but also quite, also somehow funny. But it really shouldn't be. Um, one, two, three, four. Do I have anything else at Chris Walken? Dinner table in wedding crushes. Mm? The dinner table in wedding crushes. Oh no, the, f- the football scene in uh, <laughs> large nature versus nurture large. Um, yeah, I see. I did dinner table in the wedding crashes. I actually completely forgot. He's not. I do think he could have done more in that. But yeah, he's very good at a dinner table. I quite like um, either. Well, either time he really goes out for dinner with his son in Catch Me If You Can. Yeah. The, the one time where Leo is just offering to buy him all of this, these incredible things, and he's he's embarrassed. He doesn't like that his son's having to do this for him. And then the second time where he's almost doing the like. Wink, go on, son, as he's running from the police and saying, you can't give up now, you've got to keep going, this is incredible. Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I love the film. I just, I struggle to remember it. I, other than the first scene, I struggle to remember a minute. Uh, he's also, I also like uh, Pulp Fiction and Pulp Fiction as well, we've talked about the yep. what. Yeah, uh, th- this, compared to some of these films, may be offensive to put it in the same bracket, but 
I quite like in Click any particular scene where he is Christopher Walken almost just amping up Christopher Walken to like level 1000. I fucking hate that film. So I can't, I can't believe that. I told you that before. Yeah, I know you did. It just, I choose to put that on my mind. I fucking hate that film. God, it's awful. But Christopher Walken's on a lot of level on this podcast now. Uh, now he's just reeled off some of those films. He's a great guy. Yeah. Great dancer. Um, <laughs> a great dancer who doesn't like dancing. Very <laughs> funny. He's just like, after a while, it gets boring and people need to dance in every scene. Um, I feel like I'm missing some, but I, f- I don't, I don't I, we can't do this all night. No. Um, there wasn't much trivia for this film. Well, there, there wasn't much trivia that I thought was interesting, essentially. Um, and so, so I've got a selection for you. Um, the character of Charles Costello that was played by Woody Harrelson, and he's great in this, uh, the ruthless gangster whose only real affection is for his small dog, that was originally intended for Mickey Rourke, who in he real life is known to have a great affection for small dogs, but he had a disagreement with um, the director. Yeah, he could have done it. I'm glad they got Woody. Um, but he could have done it. The original script revolved heavily on the Shih Tzu getting shot in the final standoff of the film. The film boards insisted that they shouldn't show animal cruelty and the script was changed. Uh, Billy refers to this in the graveyard scene when he says, his rabbit gets away because you can't let animals die in a movie, just the women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. People get more upset about it. Yeah, uh, the one I always reference is I Am Legend when people say he shouldn't have killed the dog that is literally going to kill him and infect him and turn him into a zombie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so I think that's, 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 that's uh, one of the most famous ones, isn't it? I don't mind And finally, uh, what did I have down here? No, sorry, that's not trivia. That's just a, a point to make later on. The intertwining, the intertwining stories here is obviously the main oh, just, thing. Just gone sorry. from past the trivia, now, over. That was literally. That was literally. Okay, it. when you said there's not much. Uh, no, I looked. Well, at, I looked at one I the in the wrong section. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the intertwining stories. This is obviously, I think, the main thing that I would think of if I was to try and sell the film to someone after the uh, incredible cast. Is it unfair that essentially any time we get this, it's just automatically compared to Tarantino? Because it's not that he has originated that idea, it's just more that he has mastered it, I guess. Popularised it and kept going with it. He has mastered it, I do think he's, but that's probably what it is. I don't think it's unfair, no. Especially not for this specific film. Because if I told you, if you watched that and didn't, you didn't know the director and I told you it was Quentin Tarantino, I think you would believe it. Yeah. and because... you'd, have some, you'd have some questions about things that are missing, but I think you'd believe it. Yeah, I think he referenced it when he was on Joe Rogan and I think they even pointed out uh, how it's a compliment to him, but it is quite insulting to other directors in that anytime you really just have cool dialogue these days, someone will say, oh, that just sounds a bit like Tarantino that does. And I guess you could point to the opening scene of this film and I could understand again, as you said, if you were told that Tarantino directed it, it wouldn't surprise you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But 
I think that's what happens. The film is built upon and built is built upon and built upon. I mean, you think people anytime you anytime you knock out a film that involves gangsters, there's half a chance that you're going to read my a Scorsese comparison. Yes, fair point. Should, so should Marty McDonough in this should should he take it as an insult or should he take it as that's just a game? Well, it, I mean, it's not like he's being compared to someone's shit. That, at that point, you take it as an insult. But if you are being compared to, well, I don't want to say to anything too bold, but what I would argue is a master of modern cinema, of of yours and mine, life, your mine and yours lifetime, considering we were both born in '94, possibly the biggest director of the last yeah. twenty eight years. In that time, he did the, no Reservoir Dogs was ninety three. Sorry, sorry, he did Reservoir Dogs. That's that's the It's funny you. Kill Bill 1 and 2, and so on. It's funny you mention Reservoir Dogs, because if we're talking Tarantino comparisons, sometimes they can be, this tried so hard to be Tarantino, and we may get onto another film that has that accusation lobbied against it. Mm. Um, I was reading a critic's review, and they said, I love Marty McDonough's writing so much. He adds such humanity to his characters, better than many seasoned directors with many films under their belt. In Bruges and Seven Psychopaths are fantastic films that achieved near-perfect story arcs and had very personable, memorable characters. Do you agree with that? Because it's very impressive if the majority do feel that way when you consider there really shouldn't be much relatable about these characters by the fact they are literally deemed as psychopaths. But it does feel like you can relate to certain parts of each of them, even a guy that is romping around blowing people's heads off and then leaving a calling card behind there is humanity in the characters in Bruges maybe more but even again even in Bruges about Hitman it's a much smaller cast isn't it from what I gather yes yeah, yeah. but very, but a very very good cast nonetheless well he said the way that he kind of transitioned into this is that as much as the cast may look big on paper he's only really got about four people on set each time Yeah, yeah. It, there's an intimacy. Um, there, 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 I think there is an intimacy, but again, maybe that's just projected because you work with the same people again and again. Mm. Well, it it would make sense in uh, how he manages to intertwine the stories together. First of all, I should probably ask: Do you think he does do a good job of combining yes. the stories? Yes, yes, I do. Because the fact that he does manage to do it, if you were to kind of look at his resume, the fact that he was a well-established playwright before transitioning would make perfect sense in that instance. Because yes, having to translate it to a, a literal stage before you're going onto the big screen, you've got far less to work with, you've got a far smaller cast to work with, and I guess you've got far less of a medium to tell the story. So if you can manage it there it's probably a great skill to have when you are trying to take that over onto the big screen. Maybe this is uh, Graham Potter having his tactics already and then going to uh, take it to Chelsea and see how that works out. Yeah. Um, it's very much a change. It, it must be it must be quite a change, but I don't 
I unfortunately don't know enough about the world of stage uh, no. stage play to to say too much. We speak so frequently about opening scenes and the ability to almost have you kind of nodding to yourself like, yeah, I just know I'm going to like this already. And the opening scene of this film, you get Michael Pitt and uh, Michael Stahlberg uh, having cameo roles. It was nice to see your man from uh, Boardwalk Empire again. Mm. The conversation they're having about shooting someone through an eyeball is just brilliant for what it is and works very well to set the scene for the film. It does, very much so. Did you like the Mo Green mention? Yes, yes I did. <laughs> Banging cocktail waitresses two at a time. <laughs> Phenomenal one though. I mean, it's a fair point as well. A hundred fucking cops shooting a thousand bullets a minute one of them's bound to go through somebody's eyeball. Yeah. And then you get these quite dark things of him discussing the various contraptions that can just pierce a man's eyeball. Uh, Larry saying, I stabbed a guy in his ear once, ice pick. It's a dark scene, probably reduces the shock value that you're going to get later on because it does set the stall out. And I thought it did a good job in establishing some kind of tone because to have quite a quirky kind of hitman in this instance in someone that is wearing a mask at mul- on multiple occasions, is leaving the Joker cards behind, is, is walking up almost in a comic book kind of fashion in uh, the the it's the lack of drama that they do it just so casually. To then be able to have you invested in the film, taking it seriously, I don't really know how they managed to do it. I guess there's just enough seriousness between all of the crazy antics just to keep you on board. Yeah. And I don't have the the titles down. I thought the music in this was was fantastic and I'll definitely have a look through, maybe get the soundtrack on my Spotify and pick a few of them out because it's so good the whole way through. Yeah. I was just trying to find it funny enough. I wouldn't recognise a lot of the names of them even if uh, even if you told me them, but I just remember the whole way through the music paired really nicely with the scenery particularly uh, when they're in the desert at the end of the film and it's just it's it's all just so nice um some they did i believe that was the x amount of it they just they they knocked out for the film he did really well and i swear the guy i feel like i read once upon a time that they released um Du, 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 du. Sorry, they released this. There's like an album, I swear, but I could be lying to you. Yeah, I think it's on Spotify. Oh, okay, fair enough. I didn't know that, but don't click it now because it'll take you off the app. But no, when no, when no. I searched Seven Psychopaths earlier, um, there was a definite album that came up. Oh, yeah, I remember reading that one upon a time. Of the characters involved, was there any that you found yourself rooting for or did you find yourself fairly neutral as the film went on? Uh, maybe because because it's of who it is. <clears throat> and I probably shouldn't, but Billy. Okay. It, it's, it's a strange way they do it, don't they? Because they do make quite a personable guy and maybe it helps that you get to know the character first before it is revealed. Yes. Yeah. He is this madman. 
Yeah. And I guess the fact in it, we're jumping back and forth, the fact that at the end of the film, the dog is essentially choosing him over his owner. Yeah. Does, inadvertently, it's almost supposed to tell you, he wasn't a bad guy. We know he was. <laughs> but I think that's the point of it, to point out, he may be bad, but he's maybe the best of a bad bunch. Yeah. So yeah. freak animals in films are, are, are supposed to show who has the truest character. Yeah, this was real to sense the bad guy. I get you. I thought there was something to Colin Farrell. It's quite refreshing to actually hear him be allowed to use an Irish accent for a change and not force him to try and put on American accent. Yeah, I often wonder how much of it's forced. I know sometimes they are, but I do wonder if or if it's his choice. I assume at the start it was probably more forced, but now maybe it's his choice just to open because, it. it. Possibly opens him up to more. Because this season alone, haven't we? We've spoken about accents so much, and it's mm-hmm. been like if someone can't do an accent and he clearly can but it's like if someone can't do it then if it's adding nothing to the film then just let them speak in their actual voice and for this yeah it wasn't going to add anything if he was speaking in an american accent and so just let him run free with the irish one and you'll probably get more out of his character then because he doesn't have to focus so much on uh, the voice work yeah well yeah you could you suppose it's not something you're focusing on and it leads all to I, yeah. There's no, but as you say, in this film, him being American adds nothing to it. No. Also, possibly for a director who's British and Irish, and a writer who's British and Irish, maybe it was easier to write with him in mind as an Irishman as opposed to your main character. Or essentially, what should be a main character is something you know and lead, you can lend your own experience to the dialogue, possibly. Well, you you get some. Uh... Irish commentary in it, don't you? In there, you have the moment with uh, Charlie saying to him, "You don't believe in guns? They ain't fucking leprechauns." Mm. What do you think of uh, Woody Harrelson's character? Because <laughs> I thought he was the perfect one to keep the film ticking. He had the perfect balance of the comedic effects. In you're, you're, you're supposed to hate this guy, but it's very he, hard to hate him. It is, but it's like when you've seen someone shoot a perfectly innocent old lady but it's not done it's not like oh, okay maybe i maybe just mean you shouldn't fun. be able to like feel yourself rooting for that character after but he still does have something about him it, it, i don't it doesn't inspire hate no, that's what i mean that's why it's, it's impressive yeah, that it's just the way i mean i think a lot of it's is it, like the way it's written but it's also such a perfect person to to play it he's very Woody Arson is very very good and very could Mickey Rourke have played it like that that was uh, just as you said just as you reminded me of him shooting the old lady funnily enough that was the first thing that popped into my head um and I don't know is the honest answer I think maybe his demeanour possibly changes the tone of the scene I think you'd see you'd see more from the henchmen and it's not like they don't have uh, the actors alongside him to be able to do that. 
But that's that's how I think you'd play it. I think you'd probably see more from someone like Kevin Corrigan to provide the comedic relief. They'd probably be far stupider in the way they play the role and his comedic value would probably be him snapping at people and then the occasional strip-back moment of him just missing his dog. Yeah. I certainly don't think you could have the scene where his gun keeps jamming, where he's got the woman that was supposed to be looking after the dog. I don't see Mickey Rourke doing that in the same vein. And so this may be kind of a happy accident in that you couldn't get this guy and you fall on your feet with Woody Harrelson. Yeah, I do see it. It's very, <clears throat> excuse me, it's uh, very much a win to to be able to have him playing this character. I find it very interesting with um, Woody Harrelson as I don't even know what it is that he does specifically, but he manages to toe the line so well as to whether he wants you to find his character arrogant to the point of disliking them or arrogant to the point of almost being charming. And I don't know what difference he does make, whether it's a smile, whether it's what, but he does manage to toe the line so perfectly there. And in this, I think they give him just enough I think he he's better when he does get to play a villain and I imagine he had a great time doing this yeah you have to presume this was fun like if just the the tone of it the, the the people you've got around you have to imagine this was a very very a very fun set to be on because you hear and you hear these a-list guys and say it's um I don't know. So whoever the biggest actor today is, I'll just chuck a random... Say it's Ryan Gosling. Say yeah. Ryan Gosling is as A-list as it gets. If he works with Christopher Walken or Morgan Freeman, some of these guys, it doesn't matter how big you are, they still get that excitement. And what was it, Leo of Jack Nicholson in The Departed, where he was like, I just felt so much pressure to live up to this guy's standards. And it feels like the energy that Christopher Walken puts out there, he does just have that feel with other actors when they get to share the screen with him. Yeah, I, I get that. It must be fun, though, no? Just, just seems like an outright... I just know I will say it once, so I will probably say it more so, but just just as a great guy. Yeah, a proper character as well. The The scene with him refusing to put his hands up yeah. and the, the other guys having to do that, but it just doesn't make any sense. That was improvised. He hadn't done that in any of the other takes. It was just an idea he came up with. They say, put your hands up, and then they rolled with it with him, so credit to them too. Yeah. But it's just one of those things that, I mean, that, that voice is just money, whatever he says, but <laughs> this the, the, the role he has here of being the cold yet endearing like there's just so many adjectives you could use for him and somehow he manages to encapsulate them all yes yes he does and he, he must just be someone that just loves it i know he does this tv show with um, Stephen merchant now and he speaks just so glowingly on there it's not like all respect to him we've clearly seen that robert de niro at this stage if you put enough money on the table he'll go through the motions and he'll get you there. It seems like at this stage, Christopher Walken is still, whether he's trying to achieve greatness, but he, he's still out there picking projects that interest him. He's still out there trying to do something different. He's still out there really having the passion that he's probably had to get into this stage of his career. 
I wish I could tell you who wrote it, mate. But within the last six months, I read it, a, an extended uh, extended interview with him, and it was incredibly interesting. Um, and I wish I could find it for you because he talk he does talk about stuff like that about what he wants to do. But I just can't remember. Where, I just can't remember where I read it. Oh, I was in a Guardian. Um, okay. Because it talks about him being a lion tamer. Uh, yeah, he once had a job as a lion tamer. I'll send. I'll send it to you. Well, I know. Um, John John Torturo had an interview about a fortnight ago, and he was asked what he wants to do next, and he was like, "I just want to write a book about Christopher Walken." Mm. And I think he had some name for it. It was like walking and talking or something like that. <laughs> nice. But yeah. he just wants to tell stories about Christopher Walken, <laughs> and it sounds like it probably would be fantastic. Yeah, um, he actually said, and he just said, like you're talking about the stuff he wants to do. Was he like he said, I love to work. It's one of the reasons we didn't have children, and I probably won't ever retire. And he said, I've never, I've never had hobbies, just a strong work ethic like my father: tennis, swimming, golf. They never, never did it for me. Acting is really what I love. I don't like really, I don't really like to go out of the house unless I'm working. So I probably puts gives you an idea. Yeah, I saw. I just looked at the headline of that interview you said about, and the headline being, "I got a job as a lion tamer. Who's going to turn that down?" And mm. the sheer fact that in his mind nobody else could turn that job down is idea enough as to the kind of guy that he is. Because if yeah. I offer you a job as a lion tamer tomorrow, I feel like I may know your answer. I mean, I don't know how work's going in that maybe you would take a job as a lion tamer. But I've got to think uh, you'd at least be having second thoughts. Uh, yes, I would, yeah. Yeah. The standoff scene of this film, what we think is the climax, I know there's a couple of bits that come after it. It is really good and... There's a theory I know you don't like to read too much into uh, the kind of what was the director thinking here, but in Christopher Walken and in, you told me his name earlier and it's just escaped my mind. In, Say that again, sorry. In Christopher Walken and in uh, Sam Rockwell. Yeah. The theory is that you've got basically the two sides of Hollywood here and in Billy's character, you've got the brash studio side of Hollywood that wants to make this film the exact same way and you have to do it this way. And an example of that is how he tells the story for Hans and then you see the other side of it and it's a lot different to the fired up in your face version that's been said previously. I've explained that very poorly, but would you read anything into that in those two characters being a representation of the type of script that he's both trying to write, Marty that is, and the script that he's trying to avoid? Um No, I wouldn't have read anything. I wouldn't even I wouldn't even have quite considered it until you said it. But again, it's just me. It's not my theory, it's one I read and I thought, okay, I can see where that's coming from. It's not like one where someone is saying, well, the theory of this is that the second main character has been dead this whole time and there are ghosts coming back and 
then this really is telling you about the Romans and something ridiculous like the ones you'd see with Gladiator, etc. This felt like it was a reasonable theory, but whether you buy into any of that or not, I do think the film is uh, enjoyable regardless. Yes, it is, yeah. Even just with the moment of the uh, Vietnamese psychopath mm-hmm. and what they're trying to do with that character in that they reference a few times, don't they, the lack of women in this film. Yeah. And I think they say something about the, the being marketable and all of these things. And so you have a woman in this scene who is sold as simply a hooker and then she speaks multiple languages. She, she, she's somewhat of like a mastermind in working out how this is going and all of these things. And there's just so many little uh, tidbits that if you were doing media studies, it'd probably be a dream and you'd probably ace all of your tests picking it apart. But also you can just put it on as an easy watch and it'll do just the same job for you. Yes, yes, it does. I can assure you. What was your favourite scene of the whole film? Shoot out in the desert. Yeah. Uh, Charlie and Hans, the meeting, like you say, about not having a gun. Uh, I do like the diner scene. Um, bit of a suck from it. But probably, there's probably, it builds to a great conclusion. Like, it's fun, and it is fun all the way through, but it does, I think it builds to a very, very good conclusion. A lot of it, t- it ties together really quite nicely. A lot of the chat towards the end is brilliant. Um, but yeah, it's, it's probably shoot out in the desert. I think the scene that was on my mind when I was thinking about it this morning was him being at the uh, warehouse with the pets and the three guys coming up and starting to ransack the place in their masks. But as you say, the standoff is probably the one that I come back to. That or Woody Harrelson and uh, Christopher Walken sat across from each other in the uh, hospital waiting room. Yeah. I thought that was very good as well, just because, I mean, it's not quite De Niro Pacino, but it always just does give me a little pop seeing like the two megastars face-to-face on screen. Yeah, fair. Is this a film you recommended? Because I thought when we did it previously, I don't know when you watched it. I don't know if you, you were the one that recommended it to be in this bracket, if it was just we saw it on a list or... No, I told you to include it. So when did you see it for the first time and did you stumble upon it? Was it someone recommended to you? Probably half stumbled. So I probably watched this about 2014, 2015. Okay. Quite a while ago. I've seen it three or four times since. Um, I saw Colin Farrell, Sam Rockwell. Woody Harrelson, Christopher Walken. Yeah. Uh, I was like, oh, okay. read the synopsis. I was like, right, cool. Read the genres, if you will. I was like, right, I'll do me. I saw the director was the same guy as did in Bruce. I was like, right, okay, I'm probably going to like this. Watched it, loved it. Yeah, it's... Um, it's, Man, it's, it, it's very, very... It's very fun. Or oh, I think it's very fun. I think that's... I know it's a very simplistic opinion, but... Very simplistic person, in fairness. Um, but it's just, mate, it's just an easy watch. It's fun. For all the 
the violence and stuff. It's not like it's not. It should. It could be a lot darker if you want. You could as a I'll serious version as well, and make it incredibly dark if you wanted. So yeah, I don't even think it would be that difficult a task. I don't even think you'd have to change. Well, it could be as simple as the dog dying at the end. Yeah, but no, I don't think that's enough. Um, but you could, yeah, maybe. But I think you just change the tone of the way certain things happen. Um, and it, it changes massively. I mean, I think you could even keep X amount of the dialogue and just change the delivery and change the yeah. change the time and change the delivery, and it changes the intonation, doesn't it? And then it becomes a darker film. Um, yeah, I think just think it's very well done from almost from start to finish. To be honest, I know this is one of those ones that was only scheduled for like a limited release, and then within about a week, once <laughs> they realised what they had, yeah, it was yeah. bumped up to a, to a nationwide release straight after. Which yeah. is mad that you can have that cast and one have the budget or at least um, the acceptance of taking a loss because I can't imagine you can pay all those guys have it as a limited release and still make money and so to have all of that and then be ready to release it in that fashion tells me it was either really a passion project or maybe some early reviews maybe didn't go their way and so they were playing it safe and then soon after they realised that whoever had told them this isn't going to be uh a popular one was very wrong. I don't know, mate. I always thought it seemed like something that they all enjoyed doing. Yeah. I don't know why I thought that. Maybe it's just, but I always thought it seemed like something they all, they enjoyed doing. I know uh, McDonough essentially said Colin Farrell had given him his word, like, look, you give me the script and we'll do it. Yeah. And so he was just waiting and he did that. There's a lot of pressure when you are essentially just given the rights early doors to Colin Farrell's next film. Um, yeah, but on the other hand, yes, there is a lot of pressure. I suppose you are right. But on the other hand, you, your safety net is... It's Colin Farrell. No, no, not that. I was going to say the safety net of that is if you, my Madonna is, he must as well. He's given me he's given me a blank check to do what I want with yeah. him. He'll come and do it with me. He must have, like, he, to, to do that, he has to have enjoyed the experience. So you've yeah. always got that. As long as I don't check, as long as nothing goes horrendously wrong, might not enjoy it as much. Sometimes it's not, as it, sometimes it's not better the second time around, but it's just a case of if, if, if I don't, if, if nothing goes badly wrong, then I should get away with it. This, this won't mean anything to me. Which do you prefer out of this and in Bruges? Oh, it's a tough one, mate. It really is. Um, oh, I don't know. Maybe, uh, I think this is funnier. I'll ask you again when we do In Bruges. Okay. I watched In Bruges not long ago, actually, funnily enough. I watched, I've watched it in the, within the last three weeks. Um, well, we'll move on to our next film. If this does go through, then I'll have watched it another time, so we'll <laughs> maybe go in depth in some things that we've missed out today. Um, if not, that's what happens on the podcast, but we will move on to our second film. From executive producer Martin Scorsese. Boys and guns, eh? And acclaimed director Ben Wheatley. I'm not running a pizza delivery service. Free Fire is wickedly funny. Oh, hilarious. I'm running, nobody shoots. And wildly enjoyable. Oh, now we're cooking. Free Fire.
<laughs> the synopsis set in Boston in 1978, a meeting in a deserted warehouse between two gangs turns into a shootout in a game of survival. You enjoying that trailer there? I was, yeah. I'm really enamoured with this new feature. I'm wondering when the novelty's going to wear off for me, but I, I think it's going to be a while. Well, we should have a couple of trailers to get into next week, so hopefully not too soon. Um, what do you think the critics thought of this film? Five out of ten. Six out of ten. Yes, I think it's 6.3 on IMDb. Um cartoonish and pulpy in the best ways free fire is neither original nor an instant classic but it's made with skill and talented performers to support the simplicity of the basic scenario it's a very very apt review yeah rare we get rare we get to say that super fun and emotionally desperate in equal measure it's an action movie with life and blood pumping through it in it and out of it too awful what was apparently meant to be an exercise in style instead becomes an endurance test for audiences there's enough to justify a watch on streaming services when that becomes an option but this is the kind of film where you only need to half pay attention to get a full experience see that said in such a negative light well i think that may be where i went wrong with this film (laughs) i gave it a full watch um Stripped stripped down action to its core, Free Fire is a wild, momentary ride, but ultimately forgettable. I must say, there isn't much trivia for this either. Okay. So, Ben Wheatley said he could have set this at any time, but the main reason they they set it in the 70s was so there could be no mobile phones, which would ultimately (laughs) ruin the entire film. Yeah. The film is the longest gunfight in the history of movies since about 55 minutes elapsed between the first and last shots fired with deadly intent. I mean, that's a record to be proud of. It's a a record to be proud of, but I'm not sure it's a record that... Is needed? Is... Well, I actually think that's to the detriment of the film, and that's my main issue with it and i've kind of set my stall out early here i don't know if that's a good or a bad thing no no you do you go on it i just never felt like i cared about anyone in the film and when you have when you have that array of actors at your disposable at your disposal and if we compare to what they did in the previous film we've discussed it's like you did so much there with what you had. And this feels like they were willing to just dine out on the fact that, look, we've got Brie Larson and look, we've got Killian Murphy and, and so on. And I didn't feel it. I felt that you could have done more, but at the same time, I do acknowledge the entire reason you have this film it's is so that there shouldn't to. be a build up Like, yeah. I think the only way you do more is to take a leaf out of seven psychopaths and away from, and you'd have you sort of cut and cut and cut and cut and cut. Yeah, because it's like even the humour feels like I don't need a punchline every single time you're talking. <laughs> and it's a criticism 
the, the latest Thor film, if we compare the two, in that there can be too much. Like just because it's something you do well, maybe carry some of those jokes into the next film. It doesn't need to all be in the same one. I, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure this was ever going to be slated for a sequel, mate. No, no. Ben Wheatley wrote the role of Chris for Killian Murphy after the actor approached him and expressed a desire to be cast in one of his films. That must be cool. <laughs> yeah. Do you think there's a point where maybe an actor that you're not too fussed about approaches you like that and you uh, I mean, maybe I can pencil you into something. Maybe that's how you know you're big time when you start turning people down. Yeah, maybe. But I just think I'd be meant to love to work with you. What yeah. I mentioned her earlier, Olivia Wilde was actually cast in the lead role for this film but dropped out. Do you know what she dropped out for? I don't, but maybe because we've seen Brie Larson do comedy films, etc. before. Mm. I, I I don't know if I see Olivia Wilde being a great fit for this film, but maybe that was what the film needed. I don't know. And that's not even a slight on uh, Brie Larson because I think she's one of the best things about the film. I think she's one of the better things about the film. They they say in this one they don't shy away from uh, the comparisons. He says, The movie's atmosphere and narrative is inspired by Quentin Tarantino films like Reservoir Dogs and The Hateful Eight, where in those films most of the story is set in a large room and almost every character dies in a horrible shootout while some characters survive and their fates remain ambiguous. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah, this is it's got Reservoir Dogs stamped all over it. Yeah. The, I'm going to ask you a question about that in a moment, so we'll save that. Okay. Brie Larson, this is her first action movie role. Mm. Do you think... Uh, let me ask your thoughts on the film first, because that'll probably dictate the way my questions go. Well, I think it's safe to say that I I like it more than you do. Yeah, that, that's fair. I, I, I don't know if watching the two so close together sometimes, you can immediately draw comparisons. And my My feelings were just so high on the previous film that... It, yeah, it was likely to be a come down. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Um, yeah, I would have started with this first exposure. But hindsight's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Although, in fairness, I never really expected you to enjoy Seven Psychopaths. So. I think I I'm, I'm convinced you, you say that for each film, and I'm pretty sure I've liked each film you've said that about. So maybe it's just like your internal monologue just like preparing you for the worst and hoping for the best. No, I've said that I think there's stuff you'll like. I don't say about everything. I just think there's certain things that I enjoy that you, you're just going to hate. Well, we're getting some films that are the other way around, so pressure will be on you. Yeah, well, you're, you're just you're a lot more serious about these things than I am. <laughs> well, I think I was... that's, that's, sometimes the, that's sometimes the problem. That's sometimes where my expectation comes up. Ah, no. And yet, still no Piranha podcast. The wait continues. Don't hold your breath. Uh, this, no, certainly not around Piranhas. This was Brie Larson's first action movie role. Do you think she had uh, like a selection to choose from? Do you think this was carefully chosen? Do you think it was, I need to break into this space and this is what she chose to do? Because she doesn't, I guess she's a Marvel character now. It's not quite the same kind of action this would be. Um, I imagine when you got the script for this, 
I think it would read really well. And so I have no doubts there. I can imagine if you were being selective about your role, I can kind of see why this would be the one that you may end up with. I think this would have read well. Yeah. Funny enough, I was going to say that to you, but I think I think it would have read as an enjoyable project. And if you... Right, I mean, you'd like to think it's... it's it's the way it works all the time, but it's it's not it's not going to be. But if you're trying to break into a space to do it with something that you think you'll enjoy is obviously easier. If you if you're if you're enjoying yourself, it's far easier to dedicate your time for something, isn't it? Yeah. Um and I do think that I do think this would have read as something that would just be good to go and shoot. Yeah, I I thought one of the casting choices in this did age pretty poorly. Okay. Arnie Hammer. Well, I know, but you didn't know that at the time, did you? No, I do. The best thing about that whole thing was um, when that first broke and people are, oh, this is classic exaggeration. The guy's obviously not a cannibal. And then those text leaks, it was like, oh shit, this guy actually is a cannibal. Yeah, This is very fucked up. He flat out wants to eat people. (laughs) How. Do you think you could ever trust someone again if, say, you thought someone was like a good mate or just someone that you spent a considerable amount of time with and you thought was a decent person? To then find out, now I don't know how you, how your judge of character is that you can spot someone's a cannibal, but do you? Th- that must question then every time you meet someone new, like, what am I not picking up here? Uh, I, I don't. I'm not sure. I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd go that far. God, what a fucking depressing way to live your life that would be. Yeah, I mean, but I, at the same time... If that's the mentality you've got, I don't want to sound rude, but I think you'd end up topping yourself. Well, I'm hoping I don't know it, unless you've got something to tell me. What did you have for tea? I've not eaten yet. Well, I had... Uh, well, I won't fill you much uh, more joy. I had soup and put too much pepper in it and ruined it. So, no such thing as too much pepper. No, what? The dispenser wasn't working, so I took out... like. Um, like a little baby spoon, yeah. I just got like a clumped uh, spoon of that, and thought, well, when it's going through the whole soup, and then it it wasn't breaking up enough. It was, yeah, it wasn't enjoyable. Uh, you gotta love that pepper. Um, the thing that I took away from this film was really the set pieces. I couldn't tell you many of the characters' names. I couldn't tell you many ups and downs, but I could point to you and say there's a guy that was set on fire. There's a guy that's heads run over by a truck. And so that that's the legacy of the film for me is that you did give me enough set pieces that I come away from it. And I thought the final sequences as you see the ultimately uh, the demise of each person was very good. Am I an old man or did you find it hard to kind of keep up with the bullets i don't know if i've worded that really simplistically but there were so many people being shot and it was there was no break in the scene that i find it hard to keep up with who was pinging who from where like i couldn't get a spatial awareness of the room i think that's literally the point of it well i I saw someone else raise this point online there were others saying that 
they didn't struggle with it. So are some people, they just play like too much Call of Duty or something and then they're just in the zone because, yeah, it was really spinning me out. I didn't struggle to keep up with it, but I think the the, the spatial awareness in the front for to keep it frantic I think is literally the point. Because what else would it be? It's one room, it's four walls, and there's, got, there's going to be bullets flying everywhere. So that is just going to be what happens. Yeah, usually you'd have like, not not necessarily a pause in the action, but just a more of a prolonged period where you would get the camera and it would pan to someone that's say hiding behind a wall, and it's them going, "Look, see if you can take him out, or quick get a bullet on him. I can't get a good shot." But you'd have more of these periods where there's some reflection within, and you as a viewer can uh, almost catch your breath and be like, "Okay, this is what they're going to do next." But I didn't really think it gave you a moment. And as you say, that may be the, the the reasoning. I didn't ever think it gave you a reason to uh, consider how you felt about the film. It was almost like a theme park ride. Like once you're on, you don't really have a moment to decide whether I like this, I don't like this, because you're strapped in. You don't have a choice. Yeah, again, I think that's I think that's the point of it. I mean, I've never been involved in where I'll where I'll shoot at. Um, not yet. No. Not yet. We've always got Movie Madness 200. Um, Monday pod against the uh, Thursday pod. I'm somewhere in the middle. Probably the one being shot first. So annoyingly, considering the Thursday pod is now just you and I, it's me versus the boys. <laughs> okay. Sound. Um, but I don't know how much catching your breath you're really going to be doing when there's bullets flying at you from almost a 360, like a 360 radius or a three, sort of 360 degree angle. I mean, if you did need backup, I, I did ask Rory if he wanted to join next Wednesday's podcast, but he's worried that you and him sound too similar to be on the airwaves together. <laughs> he said he listened to one, I think it must have been one that you did uh, around mine, where you were both on before, and he said yeah. you just sound too similar. Uh, he sent me a voice note of himself once. And then sent me a text 10 minutes later saying, I've listened back to that and I thought it was you talking. <laughs> and I was like, which, I don't know, I suppose you're a better judge because obviously you don't sound quite the same to yourself as you do to everyone else. But I think we sound, I think we sound different enough. I always think my voice sounds more high-pitched when I listen to it back on here. Really? Yeah, at least higher pitch than it is in my head, particularly. Um, said just, I. Let me know who do you think you sound like? I don't. What, no one, what? no one in particular. But I put a lot of bass in that voice, do you? Uh, well, no, I, I put yes. um, I put the <laughs> I put the clip on of me ranting about Arsenal United, and no one was even saying anything about my voice. But I don't know if either they don't care that I'm a 28 year old man. Or fourteen-year-olds do just want to let me know to cry more <laughs> about a hundred times a day because predominantly that's every time I've had a notification on my phone since Tuesday, it's been cry more. That's All right. <laughs> People still today commenting, "You still going on about that?" Well, no, I no, uploaded no. this on Monday night, but I appreciate you giving me that little click. Yeah, I mean that's all you want. I mean you take take the abuse. At what point? Uh, what point? The uh, TikTok start going to start paying you out? 
uh, a, a, a fair bit more, I think. Um, uh, although I did, <laughs> I did a, that whole rant, and someone commented on there saying, um, "TK, if that is your real name," and it's like, "Well, it's not, but nice to know that I can hide behind him and he'll get the blame for this." Yeah, nice. And someone um, commented in to tell Jack that if he really believes what he's saying, then his opinions mean nout, which I'd not heard for a while. Okay. <laughs> I, won't argue, I won't argue against it. Um, anyway, back to, back to the films then. So, oh, my question was: sorry, yeah. we'll get back to the film, but I've got you now. So, have you set up? Is it, have you now set up two separate TikTok accounts, or are you just no, I've all just, under one? The bio is um, clips from the greatest podcast in the world, and then it's just uh, a combination of both. Oh, okay, nice. No points uh, sharing those uh, hits out keep them all in the same place no no I, um, I, agree. I do have people messaging me still asking if i want to sell their beauty products so maybe if we do need some more cash for the podcast maybe we, <laughs> we invest in like a mic for you harper alex tk if you see me um promoting some lip gloss and uh maybe some of those little sticky things under your eyes to get rid of the bags yeah just, I mean, just pretend you didn't see it if you can uh if you if you can get involved on that line of things i'll take some Bags <laughs> under the eyes these days are disastrous. I'm not sure I'm a great advert for beauty products, to be fair, because that become well. If that's if that's the end product, I'll be looking yeah. elsewhere. I was going to say, I, I, I unfortunately I'm no assistance mate because there's you can't push you can't push this too much higher, and that's not because uh, that's not because it's good to start with. You just can't make very bad much better. I mean, if you go back to when we first started these podcasts, and um, we used to unpaid promote Jane's Pantry. I still want to do that, by the way. Well, you know, like, if, if they... <laughs> I mean, we're audio, but if they just wanted us to, like, crunch a sausage roll down a microphone <laughs> like once a week, and go, ooh, these Jane's Pantry sausage rolls... If we can get Jane's probably... Pantry as a sponsor, you can... Mate, I'll get to Brockworth. You can do... You can take a video of me, me eating some Jane's Pantry. We'll just have that as a TikTok. That's our spin-off. We're one of those... Um, we're like the the one up of those ASMR birds, and it's just us eating pastries <laughs> from Jay's Pantry. Oh, mate, I'll be honest, I'm all in. All we're Hearing the do, smoothness of a custard donut. We'll fire it. We'll we'll fire into them, and then we'll just we'll you and I can do a whole menu challenge from Jane's Pantry. <laughs> They're saying, look, we need to do some negotiation here. How how much money are you asking? <laughs> just some pastries. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> nothing too <laughs> much. Legitimately, just a couple of pastas. Steak bake, two sausage rolls, and to be honest, some of your absolute unbelievable sandwiches. Yeah. So, talking to James Pantry, since we're on the subject now, do you remember? I suppose during the like the December-ish, like it was. I know it's Christmas time, um, of 2020 when sort of the pubs were opening, but you had to be eating and stuff. Yeah. There was a pub that will remain unnamed. But their idea of like food for a table of six was just like, yeah, boys, do us a favor, one each, just buy a baguette, will you? Um, <laughs> and it was all from James Pantry. Oh, okay. <laughs> and honestly, their chicken and bacon is that good. I was in that pub. I was in that pub quite a lot. <laughs> and honestly, every time. And at one point, blow. At one point, the bloke behind the bar was like, "Look, will you stop eating these." <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "Look, we're running out." I was in there for a long time, and no joke. Between the six, which we probably, I pro- I probably had like three of them. And there was just loads. He was like, look, just you just pack it in and just leave it on the table. So if someone walks in, it looks like there's food there. I was like, well, the problem is you're putting food in front of me whilst I'm drinking. 
and it tastes fucking delicious. What what are you like um, in terms of customer service? Like, um, I've been into James Pantries before, and I don't have it in me to call them out. But like, you ask for a sausage roll, and you see like this beautiful one at the front of the pack, and they like reach <laughs> to the back and get like, do you know the, the you know the one that's gone? It's like that slightly slightly darker brown. Yeah. it's it's, it's more crumbly than it should be, yeah. and I don't have it in me to say. Can you grab another one? I'm more um, inclined to go, I'll have two, actually. <laughs> and if they pick another one, then I'm screwed. See, my issue with it, my issue with it is being a larger gentleman is I don't want to appear like more of a fat bastard than I already do. <laughs> I don't want to be like, no, no, that one's not good enough. I want this specific sausage roll. Because <laughs> I feel like it's a very, it's a very strange thing to have such a strong opinion on. I get your point, but yeah, I'm just, I'm just not doing it. <laughs> no, oh, <laughs> each time i go in james pantry it's like can i have two sausage rolls and one of those custard donuts please <laughs> i look and i'll be like and um one of those <laughs> chelsea buns as well and i'm like it's it's for my mum and they'll give me a look like mm, yeah i'm not sure i believe you yeah yeah the only way to play that off is oh i forgot you got there oh, i forgot yeah i'm supposed to go out as well it's yeah, also I'm like if I'm in a if I'm in a crowd and I smell like a fart in public, I think people are immediately looking at the biggest bloke there and going, "That was probably you." Correct. That was probably you that did that. Yeah, and correct. You can't protest too much. You just have to. I mean the the way around that I think is a foolproof plan. I don't know this. Is usually if I just shake my head and hope someone sees me shaking my head, they will be like. It wasn't him. He smells it as well. <laughs> but I, I don't know if that works or not. Um, back to uh, Free Fire. The Reservoir Dogs comparison, it's fair to say one is a hit, one not quite a hit, whether you mm. like it, dislike it, or your feelings on it. Yeah. Considering the, the setup, I imagine the budget would probably be more for free fire and a lot of these things. What is it that sets them apart? What what is it that makes Reservoir Dogs work far more than Free Fire? The writing. The way it's shot. I was gonna say the cast, but I don't I'm not sure I, I don't think I don't know that's that's necessarily no, true. I, I was Some looking of the at the cast. Like some of the performances, Buscemi, Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Michael Madsen, even Chris Penn, Chris Chris Penn as well, just sensational in Reservoir Dogs. You can't, can you? Sorry, I said I shouldn't say you can't because it's it's subjective. Brie Larson, we've both said one of the better things about the film, right? Yeah. Killian Murphy. Yeah, great. Also, also a big fan. Um, but you're not looking at their performance in this, going, "Wow, sensational!" Are you? No, this Michael is... Madsen in the scene with a copper where he's cutting ear, we're cutting the ears off. You're thinking, great. Even and then Tim Tim Roth when he's been shot in the car, and him and Harvey Keitel were there singing. Yeah. To, you're not, you're not gonna, you're gonna be okay. Hey, it is, it is good acting. I don't know if you've seen um, the Crouchy interview with uh, Joe Cole recently. And he's talking about when he was at Stoke and he's uh, going back to a team talk from uh, Tony Pulis when he was at Stoke. 
No, I haven't. And he says he's got all his stuff up on the board, and I think they'd just beaten it, say it's Liverpool or whoever, one of these big teams, could be an Arsenal or whatever. And he said, Tony Pulis said to them, what you need to remember is you're bang average players in a fucking great system. <laughs> and I think that's a bit disrespectful to say about the, act, about the acting cast for Reservoir Dogs. Oh, I've never heard that before. But you get yeah, the point I'm making. Tony to walk in and be like, look, boys, you shit. But I've done. It's very much a Coach Carter. I tied that shit. This is, this is like... Um, I don't think Tarantino could get any more out of the guys that he has there. Yeah. And perhaps this is just a poor use of the tools that you have or I think it is a little bit. I I I don't Even know if... why. I I'm not sure why. And maybe I think it's just because of the premise of the, the premises of the film. There's a lot less gunfire in Reservoir Dogs. And so it means more. Yes. Uh, number one it means more. But because you're not constantly shooting shit for 55 minutes, you have room to work. You'd like, there's not, uh, I mean, be, it's be comparable. You get the bits at the end, but for so long, people are getting pinged and being shot at and being shot. There's no Tim Roth. There's no Tim Roth moment. There's no, and there's no great reveal. There's a, there's a big reveal in, that's not true actually that's a complete not a lie because you find out pretty much from the beginning but there is still a a reveal that you suspect is going to come yeah but finding out that everyone else finding out that he's a copper and rv cartel is like like saying look you ain't going to shoot him is something you don't have a scene in this there's probably like this probably the most famous scene for reservoir dogs but you don't have a scene in this like the michael madsen the michael madsen dance and the, no, like, the police and the police so- officer Say I gave you um, like a, a pin-up board and I gave you the tools and you were compiling, say, a comedy on one, you were compiling like a thriller on the other, you were doing an action film or whatever. A lot of the characters here, so say you get to Killian Murphy and you've got to place him on one of these boards, this probably wouldn't be the type of film that you'd put him in. Like you would far go into something that's more psychological, you go into something where he can kind of flex his muscles a bit more this kind of bang in your face probably wouldn't be the one, wouldn't be the board that you would place Killian Murphy in. And Brie Larson, it may not even be the space that you would place her in. It, I don't know if it just smells of like United under Jose, where there's no real thought behind it. It's just let's try and buy what we think is the most expensive thing on the market. Mm. And we'll worry about where it fits in later. I mean, Chelsea have been doing that for years. I, I don't know. I think they do a good job here because they're good actors, but it's not necessarily what they're most comfortable doing or what they're best doing. No, and there's chemistry being as it is as well. Sometimes just throwing, just putting big names together. Well, I suppose United isn't just putting big names together is not always. It isn't always the best thing you can do. Yeah, I mean the the last bit of trivia I had was that um, Charlotte Copley, um, his character. Sorry, I don't know what's happening with your mic there. Sorry. Yeah, his character um, Vernon gets lit on fire, and the actor performed the stunt himself with no CGI. He stood in a fire retardant suit, and four men basically set him on fire and then we're just on, on standby to put him out before it got too drastic. 
no matter how safe you're told that could be, like, could anyone ever convince you to your day job, you're going in and just, you're going to be set on fire today? Oh, it's part of the day job? No, but if they were like, look, Keen, here's, here's X and mate, we're going to bang it, here's a fire retardant <laughs> suit, I'll give it a whirl. You're telling me there's not an amount of money that I couldn't put a, fl- a flame retardant suit on you and you're like, look, here, here we go. No, no, that we've been asked, uh, someone was saying uh, recently about that naked attraction program and the instinctual response is, I'd never go on that. Yeah. And then someone's like, well, you would for a price. And as much as you say you wouldn't, I do always think, if that check and someone just keeps adding the zeros, you might eventually say, my pride may not be worth all those zeros. And so, as you say, maybe there was enough zeros to say, I'll be set on fire. And I probably would rather be set on fire than go on naked attraction, to be fair. Genuinely just took the words out of my mouth. If you you said, look, (laughs) this is the amount of money, you have to do one of the two. Right, where's the petrol? I'll tell you a story about that when we uh, finish recording. Um, Okay. Not me. Don't want anyone there get any ideas there. Um. Anything you'd like to add, or should we go on to the judging? No, we should happy to continue. Let's uh, get this on. Which takes a while to get these uh, loaded up, but I think we are, there we go, we are here. So on to the judging. I just been waiting to use that one. What um, the fuck was that? That was a, a Will. <laughs> that was a Wilhelm scream. That honestly confused the shit out of me. <laughs> Wait, once again, for, we need. To, I need to know what you what you're going for. Well, I've, I do have transitions, but they just aren't quite as. Uh, I guess they just aren't quite as interesting. Like that's no, not quite the that. same as. Uh, you know what that reminded me of. Did you ever do a PowerPoint presentation at school and you had like a star wipe in it? That was exactly what that was. I look back and teachers must have had a nightmare. The amount of transitions we would have banged on them when you're in like year nine, you're half your presentations, like the text coming down from the top. Yeah. And then it appeared and then the right word art. Um, But yeah, let's get into Ah! (laughs) the judging. Um, Which of these two films did you prefer? Seven Psychopaths. I agree. Which did you think was more rewatchable? Seven Psychopaths. I agree. Uh, best moment slash scene? Showdown in the desert. I probably do agree. Yeah, I think it, there's a number to choose from as we as we discussed, but that would probably be there by standout. Best quote. You were fucked from birth. <laughs> uh, you were fucked from. Oh, I can't. Hold on. I've got to actually find the full quote now. There's a couple from Seven Psychopaths that I could I could take. I, I think. Hold on, my friend. <clears throat> Excuse me. While you're looking, my my favourite was uh, the an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind, and then Billy that said, "No, it doesn't. Liar. There'll be one guy left for one guy. How's the last?" How's the last blind guy going to take out the eye of the last guy left? 
yeah, that was was that that <clears throat> uh, the Spanish got bullfight and the French got cheese and the Irish have alcoholism. Yeah. Uh, I I like as well as um. Hold on, I'm reading my notes. Though. There was a time that I used to do these things by category, and now I just don't. Well, he says, doesn't he? The uh, I don't have a drinking problem. I just like drinking. And he says, "Yeah, I." One, you're a writer. Two, you're from Ireland. Part of your heritage. You're fucked. Be honest. I don't have a drinking problem. I just like drinking. I <laughs> never, <laughs> never, never. Not many quotes in the films have resonated more with me. To be honest. Um, no shootouts, no payoffs. Just human beings talking. <laughs> what are we making? French movies now. Sounds like the stupidest ending. No shootouts. It sounds like the stupidest ending I've ever, ever fucking no shootouts. Yeah. Uh, what are we um, making French movies? That's the fifth. Them is the fifth time that I've heard back, but and it makes me laugh every time because I never expect it. I think I think the one that actually made me laugh the most is um, when the the guy. I think it's the uh, assassin comes in for one of the first times uh, when Hans is there. And he says, he's out there asking where the dog is. And he says, have some pride in yourself. Have some faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord. And don't tell this scum sucking motherfuckers nothing. But just the idea of have some pride. They're going to kill you. Have, have a little bit of dignity and do not tell these guys anything. Yeah, fair. MVP? My? Agreed. Hans, fatly dies, does uh, take it. But he just die on his own terms. He does go out the way he wants. I may change... I'm going to change my pace. Hands for me. Okay. Best side character? Charlie. Is Hans a side character? Can he be MVP and best side character? It would be a first for the pod. Um, Um, It's been a pod of firsts. So I was going to go... I would have picked Hans as your side character. But yeah. you were saying he's MVP. I felt like you were automatically going to be like, no, you can't have him. So I went for Charlie instead. Well, Do I, I think, think you'd agree would be a close second regardless? Yeah. At the very least, we're going to be avoiding whitewash here, I think, because action per minute surely can only go one way. <laughs> it does. Uh, it goes to the free fire. Best soundtrack. Is uh, a bit of Bob Dylan enough to sway you to free fire or uh, you going with psychopaths? I think they both have good soundtracks. But if you had to pick one... Oh, yeah, hold on. I'm just trying to think of... Uh, I'm just trying to find the rest of it from... Oh yeah, shit! I saw guitars in in uh, free fire. Great song. Um, probably just edged two seven psychopaths, but run through the jungle. CCR, great song. Bigger impact. I have no idea. I'd no, probably say, <laughs> I'd probably say free fire. I guess if you, I mean, we often do it where. We try and find some deeper meaning in these. If it tells Brie Larson that she does like doing the action side of things and it pushes her on to Captain Marvel, I think they're fairly similar. One's certainly more well-received, but in terms of getting it out there, 
Um, more people have asked this week have seen Seven Psychopaths and Free Fire, so I, th- I think I'll still go with Seven Psychopaths. Okay, I'd still probably edge it to Free Fire. Um, best opening scene? Best opening, Seven Psychopaths. Best ending? Mm. Free Fire. I prefer Seven Psychopaths. Yeah. And Best Chemistry. Oh, Seven Psychopaths. Agreed. They're a fantastic little trio. They are. So it's it's a whitewash in the end. That's uh, 13-1 in the favour of Seven Psychopaths. Next week, as I said, we will be on to the American Pie 1, 2, 3 and the Reunion so Movie Madness 150, ensure you are tuned in for that. Thank you again for listening to another edition of Movie Madness. We'll be back with the Spitballing Pod on Monday night. Be there. Adios.